Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. Thank you for joining me wherever you are in the world today. I'd like to acknowledge Anchor, my major sponsor for the Generate 22 conference uh, that I'm organizing, covering AI and robotics uh, to be held at uh, Box Hill TAFE, the Lilydale campus at the end of March um, on the 30th and 31st. Anchor is an advanced manufacturing company of CNC grinding machines, automation, motion control solutions, and sheet metal fabrication. The Anchor Group was co-founded by the two pioneering Pats, Pat Boland and Pat McCluskey, who bought a mini computer and used it to replace the hardwire controls used at the time, that's nearly 50 years ago. The resulting CNC provided a much more powerful and flexible technology. Today, Anchor is a thriving business with around 1,000 talented people who work together to shape the future of technology. Anchor people work across roles in engineering, manufacturing, service, and support, and a range of roles to support a global business. So thank you very much to Devin for their support in this podcast and, of course, the Generate 22 conference. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Navinda Kottajaya today. Navinda is the Principal Investigator for CSRO Data 61 DARPA Subterranean Challenge. He's a group lead robotics and autonomous systems and is also a principal research scientist. Navinda, thank you so much for making time available today to be here and uh, a warm welcome to you. Hello, Nikki. Thanks for having me. So um, really excited to have you on the on the program today. Um, we're just going to dive straight in. Tell us a little bit about your PhD, which we've covered it has been a little while ago, but it was so interesting when I read about it. Uh, yes, so I, I did my PhD uh, in the period of uh, 2004 to 2009 at, um, at the Australian National University in, in Canberra. Uh, and I was part of a, a project called the Serafina Project. And uh, that was all about trying to develop um, a swarm of really small submarines or submersibles uh, to do uh, various data collection missions underwater. And uh, my part of that was to develop a system that will allow um, these robots to know where they are and know where, um, where their neighboring robots are. Because given it's underwater, you don't have GPS. So there, there's no easy way of uh, knowing where, where things are. And uh, all the systems that were available off the shelf at that time were bigger than our robots themselves. So th there wasn't anything that we could just uh, buy and put on the robot to give them that capability. So that's that's where my project came in, where I was using acoustics, um, uh, uh, acoustic pings, multiple of them uh, on, on the robot so that they would um, uh, emit these pings and the robots around them would hear these pings and then be able to uh, figure out where the neighboring robots are and what sort of orientation and what sort of distance they were at, uh, allowing them to know uh, know the, uh, the the shape of the formation. So you've touched on something interesting at the time that you did your PhD, you know, what was available in terms of sensors and LIDARs and things, and it's all changed radically now if we go to the time that we are in. And I think that's also the prolification of robots is because the price of sensors has come down so hugely. 
that, that is true. Th- things things have become, uh, I guess, smaller and cheaper, which which really had helped accelerate a lot of areas in in robotics and automation, and and I'm hope I'm hoping that this trend continues. Uh, but th- there are some uh, fundamental challenges there as well. For for example, radio frequencies don't travel underwater, so that that still remains, and that's still still a major problem uh, compared to um, compared to terrestrial. Um, robotics or terrestrial systems where, where you can um, have radio communication, you have access to GPS, but still underwater is a, is a pretty harsh domain to go into because of, of some of these uh, attributes. Definitely. Uh, you're the principal investigator for the CSRO Data 61 DAPRA um, sub-challenge team, and we're going to focus most of our talk around this today because Australia's uh, team has just absolutely excelled at it. And DAPRA uh, stands for Defence Advanced Research Projects Agency. And this is a challenge that's run um, every three years from the United States. So tell us a little bit what this competition is about. Uh, yes, so uh, as you said, uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency in the US, that's that's their premier uh, defense research agency, uh, and they they've been around for a, for a very long time, and they are responsible for some uh, pretty amazing technology uh, developments in in the, in the world. And uh, back in the sixties, uh, when they were called APRA, that they didn't have the the defense part in the acronym uh, back then, uh, they were responsible for inventing the internet. So it's 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 as it's that big, yeah. uh, and and more recently they've um, they've had a series of robotics related challenges. Uh, they don't necessarily do it every three years, uh, but uh, they they have different challenges that are inspired by various problems or various uh, scenarios in the world. So uh, back in the very early 2000s, they had a, a very appropriately named uh, challenge called the DARPA Grand Challenge, uh, that was to send. Um, uncrewed vehicles across the Mojave Desert. And this was more than 20 years ago. And this is before autonomous vehicles were a thing. And uh, and then they uh, followed it up with the DARPA Urban Challenge uh, a couple of years later. And uh, that was a similar challenge, but in an urban setting where you have roads and road signs and, uh, and buildings and things like that. And uh, the team that won this challenge was uh, from the Stanford University. Uh, and uh, Google hired the whole team, the winning team from Stanford, and that's how Google's um, self-driving program started, which later on uh, became known as Waymo. So DARPA was responsible for catalyzing a whole new industry sector through through these challenges. So that that's that's the type of challenges that they set up, and then uh, um, many years later. Uh, they, they had uh, various other challenges. And then one of the uh, bigger ones was back in 2013, uh, 2015 timeframe, where they set up what was called the DARPA Robotics Challenge. And this was inspired by the response to the Fukushima nuclear disaster. D- despite the advances in robotics technology, soon after um, the dis- this disaster, it was very apparent that there were massive gaps in, in our capability because we, we just the robotics community just didn't have robots that could be sent into this uh, disaster zone to to collect vital information to uh, to get the data to to do the tasks that were required where you couldn't send humans due to the very high levels of radiation uh, and uh, from from what i've read what i know so far they're, they're supposed to be like a graveyard of robots inside the uh, uh, Fukushima nuclear plant where they've sent robots, but they've just 
collapsed and then there's supposed to be piles of dead robots in there. Uh, and uh, so DARPA said this DARPA robotics challenge with a, uh, with a similar setting where you had to um, uh, have, a, have a robot that could uh, drive a vehicle designed for, for a human, a few hundred me uh, meters, disembark from the, uh, from the vehicle, then, then open, open a door to go into a simulated industrial environment. And as soon as you go through that door, they would throttle communications, radio communications to, to simulate the, the loss of uh, communication. And once you're inside that space, there are a number of uh, tasks using uh, tools and devices designed for humans. So that, that's, that's what you would have in that sort of a, um, industrial uh, accident scenario. So the robots had to pick up power tools, um, uh, cut holes in a drywall, flip a uh, switch, uh, unplug a, a hose, free plug it, and walk through a debris field, climb stairs, and things like that. So they, all, all of this had to be done in, in, in a one-hour time frame, and you get points for each of the tasks. And uh, that, that was the previous version. So this was won by um, a team from, uh, from South Korea, from KAIST. And uh, at that time, I, I, I was lucky enough to be in the audience in the finals in 2015, and it was kind of inspiring to watch that from that point of view but at that time I don't think we we really imagined that uh, we'll be in a finals yeah. uh, competing as a finalist so so the latest iteration of this the one that we competed in and then um, had the finals is called the DARPA subterranean challenge so this uh, was all about sending teams of robots into underground uh, environments unknown underground environments and uh, uh, they did not say, oh, it has to be done with one robot or, or 10 robots. So they, they kind of kept, uh, left it open for, for the teams to decide the type of robots, the number of robots. Uh, but they did specify the types of environment. So they classified the underground environment or the subterranean environment into three categories. One was, uh, the first one was uh, uh, man-made tunnels, like mining tunnels. Uh, the second one was um, underground urban environments, such as uh, built environments, subway systems, sewer systems, uh, various industrial infrastructure that could be underground. And then the third one was natural caves. Uh, and all of these environments had um, its unique uh, challenge elements. At the same time, also had some common elements like, again, you don't have GPS, so you don't have an easy way of knowing where you are in this environment and uh, they are extremely harsh for radio communication uh, and uh, the, the challenge elements that are unique to each of those environments would be in terms of traversability for example mining tunnels could be dusty could be muddy could be slippery uh, and uh, could have lots of branches uh, maze-like structures uh, underground urban would have um, clutter, stairs, ramps, uh, ledges, drop-offs, vertical shafts, and again, caves uh, would literally not have any flat surface. Like natural caves yeah. don't have flat yeah. surfaces. So, and, and then you would have loose gravel and then uh, very, very narrow passageways, narrow squeezes, and, and uh, sometimes very large caverns, uh, high alcoves. So uh, that, that was the challenge. So you had to go into these environments and then find a number of uh, predefined artifacts, uh, predefined objects. So they had 10 object classes. Again, these represented um, what you would 
encounter in a disaster response scenario. There, there were thermal mannequins representing human survivors. Uh, there were hard hats. Um, there was climbing rope. Uh, there were fire extinguishers. There were uh, handrails. Uh, there were um, mobile phones, backpacks, uh, pockets of uh, high concentrations of carbon dioxide, air vents, um, and then various things like that. So for the robots, it was like a giant in-stay gun. So you had to go in. Uh, the organizers would hide these objects in this environment. So the robots had to go in. Humans were not allowed to go into the course. Only the robots are allowed. And only one human is allowed to connect to a, a computer that can communicate with the robots. So you have one hour, send the robots in, find as many of these objects as you possibly can for a correct identification coupled with the correct location of the object. You, you score one point. And uh, that's again. That's how you. That's how you win the challenge. So more more points you collect uh, with the correct object uh, class and the correct location. And yeah, that, that's that 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 was a challenge. That's an essence. So hugely hugely challenging. I'm correct that it started in 2018. And how many teams originally started? Because I don't think they all made it through to the finals. Uh, yes, you're correct. So um, the challenge started in 2018. So it was a three year challenge. Uh, and uh, the way it happened was they, there was a global call for proposals uh, and uh, uh, CSRO, uh, we, we submitted a proposal uh, with, uh, with two other partners. Uh, and uh, that, that was uh, Georgia Tech in the, in the US uh, and then uh, Emerson, uh, which is a, a company that spun out from our lab in CSRO. So we uh, put forward this proposal uh, and uh, I don't know how many proposals were submitted to DARPA, but what they did was they selected seven proposals to be funded to compete. So that was the interesting thing. So they, uh, yes, it was a competition with prize money at the end, uh, but they also selected a number of teams that they thought were capable enough to go through this whole process uh, to receive funding from DARPA to develop the technology to compete. So um, we were the only non-US prime uh, to receive funding out of these seven, uh, seven teams. So we, we were quite, uh, quite privileged to be in that position as well. But uh, that also did not necessarily mean that you, you get uh, uh, guaranteed funding for the three years. So there, there were um, stages set up. So there, there, were, funding, uh, there were funding gates. Uh, and DARPA also allowed a number of self-funded teams to compete as well. So they allowed five self-funded teams. There were seven funded teams. So in the beginning, there were a total of 12 teams competing. So they had uh, uh, circuit events uh, based on the different types of environments that I mentioned earlier. So they first had the tunnel circuit event, then they had the urban circuit event, so on. And uh, what happened was some funded teams that did not perform too well um, lost their funding. And some of the self-funded teams that did really well started receiving funding from DARPA. So uh, the initial starting pool was 12 teams. And then towards the end at the finals, there were only eight teams uh, that, that were qualified for the finals. Uh, and, and we were one of the eight, uh, eight finalists in this. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. So I'm assuming that Australia kept their, their funded status right through to, to have stayed in the three-year competition? Yes, yes, we did. We, we did. Okay. 
All right. The, the team, actually, the Australian team, now this is the really good news, actually won the competition with uh, Cerberus, I hope I've pronounced that right, but dropped to second place on timing, um, but it was like 46 or 47 seconds, which you said, like over an hour span, like, you know, like, <laughs> who could think this? What does this mean for Australian robotics? Uh, yes. So, um, so what happened was at, at the finals, um, we we had to um, uh, go through a preliminary round first. They had two thirty-minute runs. Uh, that those the, the scores on those uh, on those preliminary runs did not necessarily count towards the final run, but it allowed us to get familiar with the with the course, so that we would be able to strategize which robots to send at what point because uh, the final scores actually had all three challenge elements so they they uh, once you go into the course they had uh, branches for the tunnel circuit for the urban circuit and for the cave circuit and then they internally they would intertwine and then connect with each other but having those preliminary rounds helped us figure out which robots would be best sent to which branch type of thing so it was a bit unexpected, but we actually won the preliminary round. Like we 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 won won the preliminary round. We we were top of the leaderboard, uh, and uh, what that meant was uh, they used the the scoring from the preliminary rounds to um, decide the order, the run order for the final round. So, so we were kind of in pole position, but the way it worked was the highest scoring team goes last. So on, for the final run. Uh, so that, that was pretty exciting to start with. And then it was pretty nail-biting because uh, on the final run day, on the price, price run day, um, the, the, the team was sequestered. So uh, the team that was go, uh, deploying the robots didn't necessarily know the scores of any of the other teams. But I, I got to know that the highest score was 23 uh, by team uh, Cerberus uh, at that time. And our team was still in the course. So I had no idea uh, what was going on. And... and uh, then when when the team finally came out of the course they said oh we scored 23 as well and uh so that that's when we figured out oh we actually tied for the top score uh and that was amazing that was a pre- pretty amazing uh, feeling to have um, have t- tied for the top score uh, and that's when the tiebreaker rules had to be invoked and then they had to look who scored those 23 points the fastest in yeah. the one hour period and that's when uh, we found out that uh, we we've been 46 seconds slower than <laughs> the other team so uh, uh it, still i think it's, it's it was a fantastic outcome uh we we built up for this over three years this this wasn't a this wasn't a sprint this was a marathon yeah. uh and uh what i was telling the team as well was let's let's not worry about the ranking let's come out of this uh having had the best run that we've had over the three years and that's exactly what we did like we had the absolute best run with the robots in the finals exactly when it counted and uh, yes it would have been nicer to to i guess win the first place but still having tied for the top score and having had that result i think that's 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 a fantastic outcome and uh, answering your question about what, what that means for australian um, the australian robotics community i think we we've had this opportunity to really showcase what Australian technology can do in a global stage. Like we, we managed to shine a spotlight on our capability. And uh, the the nature of this challenge is it's not just one capability. It's not one technology. You have to have so many things that come together to have this sort of an outcome. So I think to me, that's the, that's the really cool thing about this. So 
we we had to solve uh, problems in in communication, in mapping, in localization, in locomotion, uh, all of this, and uh, and human robot teaming, and and uh, the the robustness of the platforms themselves, uh, and. Uh, I think we, we've uh, shone a, a spotlight on, on all of these aspects and then show the whole, whole world that, look, Australia is capable of solving all these challenges. And this was a great opportunity to do that, to, to do that in a, in a, in a, on, on the world stage. Navinda, like uh, absolutely huge, huge congratulations. I look at it and I've, across all my podcasts, I've always said, do not uh, overlook Australians' capabilities and the smarts we have in this country. It's extraordinary what we do here. I think part of our um, challenge is always that you're not blowing your own trumpet enough. You know, like people are quite low-key about their achievements. And my podcast is exactly where we go. This is wonderful, wonderful. So tell me, the team did it did it have to stay the same team over the three years um how many were there in the team and like what sort of challenges did you face there uh yes so uh as i mentioned earlier so we partnered with uh with two other organizations so csr was the was the prime organization we are the ones that we that had the contract with dap and then we had these two subcontractors so uh, so we partnered with um, with Emerson't, uh, which is a drone autonomy company that spun out from our lab back in 2018. So they were responsible for the drone autonomy uh, part of uh, part of the challenge, and then we also partnered with uh, Georgia Tech in in Atlanta, Georgia, and then they uh, they collaborated with us from the the multi robot coordination aspect. So given the nature of this challenge, we 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 evolved our solution over the years. Uh, we, we knew it had to be solved with multiple robots, but exactly what type of robots slightly changed uh, over the years. Uh, but we, we knew we needed different types of mobility. So we, um, given the nature of the, of the environment, we wanted to have um, flying robots. We needed wanted drones. We, we wanted walking robots and we wanted... Um, either wheeled or track robots. So we, we had different types of mobility. So uh, Emerson being our partner, they, uh, they, they were the ones in, in charge of the, the flying capability. And then uh, we, we partnered uh, with, uh, with various local companies as well to obtain uh, the, the track robot capability. So we, we bought our uh, track robot platforms from, uh, from BIFI, an Australian uh, Brisbane-based uh, company. Uh, and uh, and we we worked with them closely. So in terms of the 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 high level consistency of the team, we kind of remain the same uh, through throughout. But the the actual individuals that worked with them, uh, we, we we had um, we had support from from a very large team of individuals. So um, I, I'm I'm leading the the robotics group in CSRO. So we have. Uh, about 80 people, about 50 um, full-time staff, and about 30 affiliates. Uh, the actual project team is around uh, 20 people, but uh, we've had support from from pretty much the whole whole group going forward um, with, with with this. So uh, yes, it, it was a large team effort, um, but uh, the team did remain more or less consistent throughout but the actual tasks that we had to do uh, and and our focus kind of 
pivoted along the way based on the, uh, the various learnings that we got from each of the stages of the challenge. COVID obviously impacted it heavily because traditionally you as a team or, or some of you would have gone over to the United States. What other challenges did you have in the, especially probably I think in the latter part of the competition? Uh, yes, so it um, was challenging, uh, uh, but I think the reality is the, the challenges were not just unique to our team. They, they, um, the other teams also had, had similar challenges. So specifically for us, um, so we managed to go in person for the first two circuit events. That was the tunnel circuit event held in, uh, in August 2019 in, in Pittsburgh. It was a, a coal mine in Pittsburgh. Uh, the second circuit event was the urban circuit that was uh, in Washington State in February 2020. Our team traveled there, so that was right at the at the start of, of the <laughs> at the cusp of COVID. So uh, I think our, our team arrived back in Australia in, in March 2020. Just I think literally weeks before international travel was affected and all that. So. Uh, that, that was pretty interesting at, at that time. Uh, but then, of course, locally, we, we had uh, various lockdowns, uh, um, um, capacity restrictions at, at work. Uh, but we, we did manage uh, quite well as a team because we, we kind of knew what we had to do. So even when uh, certain, certain parts of the team had to work from home, uh, we, we had a good uh, sense of task separation. So we knew what had to be done. Uh, and uh, then what happened was the next circuit event was the cave circuit event, which was scheduled for August last year in 2020, but DARPA canceled that uh, stage of the event because it, it wasn't practical for teams to travel to the US at that time, but they did encourage teams to try and locally have cave events and we kind of rose to the challenge and what we did was we organized our own cave circuit event in in queensland so we found a cave, natural cave system in far north queensland in chilago and uh, we tried to make it as darpa like as possible so we we went on a 20-hour road trip with our robots uh to to chilago and uh, we uh went into this cave system and then uh in, in, in true DARPA fashion, what we did was we didn't allow the human supervisors who were operating the robots to go into the cave. So they didn't know what the cave looked like. Uh, the rest of the team went in and set up the course. We, we hid artifacts just like a DARPA would have um, hidden artifacts in this course. And over, over the course of three days, we actually did challenges. We had the human supervisors send our fleet of robots into this environment. And it was it was really fun. It was, it was a really uh, cool event. So we, we got... Uh, lots of data. We collected the data. We created videos and reports. We sent all this data back to DARPA, and they were they were very satisfied with that. And uh, and that to a certain extent contributed to us being selected for the finals because they were uh, quite satisfied with the progress that we've made. So in a way, yes, COVID threw some challenges our way, but I think we we managed to uh, cope with it as much as possible. And then of course the finals that that was the the bigger challenge because we uh, we really wanted to be there in in person yeah. uh but again due to due to covid we we didn't have the opportunity to send our um i guess full strength team over there um and uh, what we did was instead we had our partners um helping us so emerson uh and georgia tech uh and then uh, we had uh, have the csro us office based in california so we had uh, personnel from our partners and the U.S. office um, 
being there on the ground. But what we did was the, the team based here in Brisbane, we, um, we developed these robots, mainly the ground robots over the last uh, past three years, and we managed to um, prepare them and ship them over uh, to the US. Uh, and uh, we were providing 24 seven uh, technical support to the team over there. Uh, and uh, most of my team, including myself, we started uh, working US East Coast hours from yeah. here, uh, spending some very late nights, uh, uh, very early mornings as well. Uh, and we, I think we, we cope really well. And then something that will be quite close to your heart, we actually uh, ended up hiring a number of telepresence robots. So we, we actually hired uh, three double robots uh, and uh, we were logged into them and we were trying to be as present as we possibly can uh, in, in the team garage there, uh, helping them and even helping technical debugging because we had uh, two, two robots, uh, one of the legged robots and a track robot that developed hardware faults. And uh, uh, what we did was our strategy was to have identical robots back home back here in brisbane as well and yeah. when, when they developed those faults our hardware engineers managed to kind of debug the problem with the robots that they had here and they were logged in through the telepresence robots and they managed to walk through walk the team through to how to uh, you know, re replace a motor in one of the uh, one of the uh, track robots and the team that was there on the ground had never done that before uh, but they were given very uh, clear step-by-step -step instructions because our team was doing the same thing here. And uh, so it, it, was a, it was a different way of doing things, but uh, I think we, we, we cope quite well and manage quite well. You've got to love telepresence, Robert, Melinda. What can I say? So tell me, what do you think the importance is of this competition? So this is... First of all, highly regarded. It's a it's a well recognized competition, uh, and uh, DARPA has the reputation of uh, setting the setting the bar very high. So typically, DARPA challenges you cannot solve them by piecing together what's available on the show. Like you are forced to innovate. You are forced to invent new new things. And having uh, having performed so well in this challenge. Uh, we have that recognition from anyone who's familiar with this challenge that to have done well, you you would have had to invent, innovate, and come up with completely new techniques and to have pushed the boundaries of what's possible in the state of the art. Uh, and in terms of what had actually happened was we've developed a number of core technologies over the last three years as part of this. And we've matured some of the technologies that we already had, such as our... Uh, Wildcat SLAM technology, and we've developed multi-agent capability. We've uh, developed a, um, a very robust multi-agent navigation stack. Uh, we've solved problems with multi-agent communication. We've developed uh, underlying frameworks to do uh, to do a collaborative data sharing uh, with, with constraint bandwidth uh, communication channels. So all of these have have many other uses rather than just being used for this challenge. So what we're currently focusing is how do we now translate this capability to solve problems faced by the Australian industry and the Australian community. Uh, and uh, we've already started getting, getting some inquiries, but uh, that's, that, that's gonna be the focus going forward. Now, yes, we've, we've been successful in this challenge. Now, how do we um, attain real world impact from the technologies that we've, we've developed? 
Yeah, you mentioned South Korea um, won the previous competition, but South Korea's adoption of robotics is is much, much higher than Australians' adoption of robotics. So it sort of goes hand in hand that you expect that they would do well there. So I think I think again, this just shows what an absolute huge achievement it was for for your team to do this, considering, you know. Our, our league or our, our adoption rate of robotics isn't that high in Australia. That That is true. So I, I hope these sort of outcomes would um, help us change that, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, where uh, people would start seeing that um, we definitely have that capability in-house. I don't think Australia has any shortage of talent at all. Uh, we definitely have the talent. We have the capability here. Um Something that had been, I guess, noticed uh, by a number of people um, is that in Australia, the robotics ecosystem seems to be a little bit fragmented, uh, where probably comes in the territory because it's a large country. We, we have uh, various institutions doing, doing robotics. Uh, but I think if we, if we can come together, collaborate more, uh, kind of achieve the critical mass to do these sort of larger projects, uh, that that might help us tip the balance and then uh, in, in a positive way and then get get more adoption of robotics in, in Australia. Yeah, look, I think there are several initiatives like the Robotics Australia Network, um, you know, initiatives like that, getting people under one umbrella. And I do agree with you because we've got some different states, like people are doing completely different things and it's, it's very hard to keep track of what everyone's doing. I know universities are closely aligned, but like how do you personally keep track of what's going on in the robotics scene? <laughs> it, it is a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, absolutely it is. And then so- sometimes it's, it's just... Uh... Uh, I think you 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 mentioned that earlier. Like, uh, I think we we are not very good at telling others what we do, so uh, people just sometimes don't know what what our capabilities are. Uh, and so, some of the examples are uh, here in Australia. We we have this amazing capability, but uh, some of our industries because they don't necessarily know about the the local capabilities, they they would start looking elsewhere. They'll they'll look at Europe. They'll look at the US when they want um, solutions to their their problems that can be solved with robotics and automation. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily say that they're, they're intentionally overlooking the capability uh, that's that's here in our own, own backyard. It's just that they, they don't know about it. So I think uh, winning these sort of challenges or being successful in these challenges gives more publicity to our capabilities. I, I'm not just talking about CSRO's capability or, or MSN's capability. It's, it's just the notion that Australia has this capability in robotics and automation. Uh, and uh, that, I guess, would at least help people ask that question. So maybe we should look look in our own backyard. Maybe we should uh, check what sort of capability there is in Australia before we kind of go go outside and looking for, the, looking for those solutions. It's an interesting point you raise because if, if the work's not hugely publicized, say there's a company looking for something, where, where would you, who do you think is the first person they should reach out to? I think an obvious is just to contact CSIRO and go, do you know of anyone doing this work? Has any of this work been done in Australia? But like, what do you think about that? Yes, I think CSIRO has, has, a, has a role in being, uh, being a trusted advisor to the Australian community. And uh, CSIRO had been playing this role for a long time. Uh, we definitely would do that, and we, we continue to do that. If 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 and when we get inquiries from uh, from industry partners, 
uh, with a problem uh, if we are aware of any other solution that's that's already out there we, we typically would direct them towards that uh, but I, I don't I don't think even our knowledge is complete so I think that that's where the challenge comes in there, there could very well be uh, university groups around Australia doing doing various uh, activities that we ourselves are not familiar with I think uh, as you mentioned earlier the the robotics Australia network and that that sort of um, that sort of uh, networks were set up to try and address exactly this problem so hopefully we, we will get more traction and there'll be more collaboration more people talking to each other I suppose uh, and and knowing about each other's capabilities to to try and try and help this problem definitely and they, they should all be listening to this podcast because i actually have people contact me and tell me they didn't know about all these people and literally i consider you the who's you in robotics and ai in australia because of the amazing work you're doing but they like it, it is an information point because you can actually look at all the guests and go i didn't know that you were doing this and i, I think as you mentioned a lot of universities are doing work that people don't know um actually there's a private company doing this but the university is also doing this yeah i think uh th that is a challenge uh, and some of these don't have easy solutions but i think uh if we if we keep collaborating if we keep talking to each other hopefully we'll we'll have have a solution and i think funding plays an interesting role here as well mm -hmm. um so in the context again of the darpa challenge uh there, there was substantial funding available like uh, for just for competing darpa was providing one and a half million dollars per year uh over the over the three years so yes we we won a million dollars um, as the second player's prize, but uh, we also received four and a half million dollars in funding uh, from DARPA over the over the three years, and then CSIRO was quite generous in co-funding this effort as well. Uh, and CSIRO put its own money uh, into the development. So this this became a fairly fairly large uh, project over the over the past three years. So if you depending on at what point you consider the exchange rate i think it's it's around 12 million dollars uh, over 3 years that that was the full full value of uh, 12 million australian dollars over the 3 years so that's that's a fairly substantially large yeah. uh, project and uh, i think from the records that i've seen it's probably the single largest robotics project in australia and uh, unfortunately i don't think we have a lot of those uh, and uh, what happens is when the when the slice of the pie is too small people don't necessarily want to collaborate yeah. uh, they, they would rather rather keep the give the funding to themselves but if we have more of these larger funding initiatives then people naturally would be more more open to collaborate and i think that would be a good thing i think uh, if you look at other parts of the world where robotics is thriving and the adoption rates are much higher you do tend to see more of these much larger projects uh, with with uh, a lot more partners working together, I think that that's that's another way of getting people to talk to each other and then work together. I suppose it's a it's a natural human tendency, but uh, on the flip side, a rising tide lifts all ships. So you know it's gonna it's gonna eventually benefit you if you've got a, a more generous outlook about it. That's um, share and collaborate where you can. I, I think that's hugely important, as you've mentioned. Navinda, what gives you hope of our robotics community here? First of all, as I said, capability-wise and, and uh, talent-wise, I think we Australia's got 
amazing talent uh and that that gives me a, a lot of hope I, I myself and my colleagues we we supervise a number of phd students and and uh, and undergraduate students and um, summer vacation students and we 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 see these amazing talented people coming through the through the pipeline and the, these are the next generation of roboticists in australia and and uh, that gives me a lot of hope to see this amount of talent um there and uh, and i think even even the outlook and the the way people see robotics and 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 the and the role of robotics and ai seems to be changing uh, in in a positive way uh, as especially due to people being more informed i think uh, uh, people like yourself has a, has a role to play there trying to kind of inform the people about all the positive benefits of uh, of robotics i think that 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 gives me hope uh, that um, that australia has has a bright future in robotics going forward thank you nabinda what's next for you going forward is there another is there another darpa challenge that you'll be participating in what what are you all this energy that's now suddenly finished what are you doing with yourself uh good question so uh so what we're currently working on is reinvesting the the prize money into into r&d and to really accelerate the translation of um the technology that we've developed and mature it to a, to a state where it can um can be readily deployed into various sectors uh, industrial sectors in australia uh, because the reality is yes we have those core technologies but each of the industrial sectors would need some level of tweaking for it to be applicable into into their into their uh, domains and then that's something that we are really focusing on and uh, some of our technologies are, are already quite mature so for example our our wildcat slam technology is uh, is about to be uh, commercially released so we already have early adopter programs we have number of australian and international um, uh, entities using this uh, licensing it out uh and and there's even an australian company that's building the hardware that we used on our robots the the cat pack um uh, that 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 was used for slam uh, so that that's that's a great example of you know translating this technology into commercial outcomes uh, we want to do more of that so we want to mature other parts of our stack uh, that can then be readily um accessed by the the uh, not just the australian community but by the international community as well so that that's that's going to be our focus going forward fantastic navinda really congratulations i i think it's absolutely fantastic uh, well done to you and your your team it's a whole team effort um if anyone's interested in contacting you is it okay that if i put your contact details or email address out there obviously connect with navinda on linkedin he's there but uh, okay if i put your email address absolutely yes Fabulous. Thank you so much for your time. I greatly enjoyed speaking with you. Absolutely fantastic work there. And to our listeners out there, thank you for joining us for another episode of Lex Talk Robotics. I hope you have a wonderful day and join me again next week. Mm-hmm.